Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. We are about to crush Babylon. Who's excited about that? <laughs> we're going we're gonna to finish out chapter 18 today and really excited. If we have so many families gone, and I, I think that the Lord purposely timed this this way because I think next week is we're going to start into my favorite chapter in the entire Bible, chapter 19 of Revelation, when the rider on the white horse comes back, and you are going to see a side of Matt you, you've probably never seen. We're gonna, we are going to geek out over some physics and over some, just, it's going to be the greatest event you will ever experience in the Bible, I promise. So you will not want to miss next week, Roger, I'm talking to you. So we, we're going to unpack uh, the end of chapter 18 today and finish out Babylon, and who is, what's going on with Babylon? And so this will be the third week we go through something with Babylon. We started two weeks ago in chapter 17 with Mystery Babylon. What is it, this harlot, this mother of harlots, this false religious system that was founded in Babel? It, it migrated through Pergamos, ends up in Rome as it follows the money. And then it was a system, a false religious system by which the entire world was led astray into idolatry. And then in chapter 18 last week, we see the judgment on it start to unfold as a literal city along the Euphrates in modern-day Iraq. And so today we're going to close out chapter 18 with the last five verses, but look at it through a lens of what is going on today, and can we test the Word of God to see, is there something in modern-day headlines that we're going to get to watch unfold? And that's kind of the challenge for us today. So this will be a unique study today. And my challenge again to all of you and what I'm praying we do as a church and all of you watching online right now that are out traveling and around the world, Acts 17.11. So take all of this to the scriptures yourself and test it and prove it to be so. And we're going to cover that verse in a minute. But it's really these six chapters that have a judgment on Babylon that I hope you see have never been fulfilled. It's Isaiah 13 and 14, Jeremiah 15 and 51, and Revelation 17 and 18. So as we continue to go through this, just have that, that lens that we're going to be looking at something that may happen any time now. We'll see. So in chapter 17, the Lord unveiled the mystery of Babylon, the mother of harlots, the false pagan religious system that was established in the literal city of Babylon. Again, it migrated through Pergamos, ends up in Rome. And we're going to watch it unfold. Now, how does it get back from Rome to the plain of Shinar? It's in Zechariah 5. So we're going to look at that prophecy at the very end. And we covered that last week briefly. So the last five verses of chapter 18 here, chapter 18, verse 20. Rejoice over her, thou heaven, and ye holy apostles and prophets, for God hath avenged you on her. So remember this mystery Babylon, it was the system that's responsible for every martyr in Jesus for the last 2,000 years. 
as God declared in Revelation 17 and the first part of 18 that we covered. So now we, as God's people, get to rejoice that God hath avenged the blood of our brothers and sisters on this city, on this system. And a mighty angel took a stone like a great millstone and cast it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence shall that great city Babylon be thrown down and shall be found no more at all. So listen to the words that God uses here. Thus with violence it shall be thrown down. And we're going to look at a minute all the way back in the book of Isaiah and Daniel and Jeremiah, how Babylon did fall at some point in history when Persia conquered Babylon, but it did not fall through violence. And it's not a city that's not found anymore. It's very much a thriving city that Saddam Hussein spent a lot of money rebuilding. So the city will not be found after this event. Whatever is happening, it'll never be found again. And the voice of harpers and musicians and of pipers and trumpeters shall be heard no more at all in thee, and no craftsman of whatsoever craft he be shall be found any more in thee, and the sound of a millstone shall be heard no more at all in thee. So joy through music will, be found, will not be found in this city any longer. You know, when you think about all through the Bible, the voice of harpers and musicians and pipers, these instruments playing, I immediately start to visualize when David was marching through the city, dancing and joyful with the noise of music. Music was created to glorify God. And Satan from Ezekiel 28 probably led worship in heaven before he rebelled, which is one of the reasons why you have music so corrupt today. And it's laced with all of these satanic messages that are out there that your kids are probably hearing that you're not even aware of. But there's a lot of occultic messages in music today, so be careful of what you take in. So craftsmen will not be found in any more in the city, and no more trade, no more rebuilding. The sound of a millstone is not found any longer. So they're no longer making food, but I think the Holy Spirit is also using a little bit of a pun here. They're not going to be grinding God's harvest anymore. So God's people, we are his harvest. We're his heritage. We are the ones that are going to go from this world into the next. And so the sound of that millstone that's responsible for grinding up God's people the last 2,000 years is no longer found anymore which is fascinating. So verse 23, And the light of a candle shall shine no more at all in thee, and the voice of the bridegroom and of the bride shall be heard no more at all in thee. For thy merchants were the great men of the earth, and for by, their sor- by thy sorceries were all nations deceived. I didn't hit on it really hard in the notes, but I'll just make a note here for everybody that's, that's listening. Thy sorceries, that word in the Greek is pharmakia. And... It's where we get the word pharmacy today or pharmaceuticals today. So just think about that with everything that's going on in the world today, and I'll just leave that right here. You can do without what you, what you will. But the phrase, uh, the Lord calls it sorcery, and I think there's a reason for that. This phrase, the voice of the bridegroom and of the bride, it's so interesting. So who's the bride? We are the bride, right? We are the bride of Christ. The bridegroom is none other than Jesus himself, our Savior, And the term bridegroom, it's used 24 times in the King James Bible, eight of those in the Old Testament. And the voice of the church has been removed from Babylon because it was raptured in Revelation 4, verse 1. And we looked at that really, really in depth when we got to that chapter months ago. But the voice 
of them, the voice of the church is not found there because it's not here. So the voice is gone. Now, our bridegroom, if you search this up in the Old Testament, you're going to find this reference everywhere, and I think this is fascinating. Joel 2 is all about the, the day of the Lord, this day of tribulation that we've been studying for months now. In Joel 2, verses 15 through 17, Blow the trumpet in Zion, sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people and sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and those that suck their breasts, let the bridegroom go forth of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. You know, why would the bride be in a closet? And, and it's a reference to the rapture, and we're going to look at this in just a second. Let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep between the porch and the altar, and let them say, Spare thy people, O Lord, speaking of Israel, and give not thine heritage to reproach, that the heathen should rule over them. Wherefore should they say among the people, Where is their God? In other words, Lord, it's, it's the same challenge that Moses gave God. If you forsake your people and destroy us in the wilderness, the, all the nations are going to say, where is their God? What did he do? Just bring them out of Egypt to destroy them? It's that rhetorical question because the entire world knows of the God of Israel and the promise God has to Israel. So he can't let them perish lest the world say, where is their God? Instead, it's going to be a miraculous salvation of his people so the world says, wow, he is God. And the bride's been taken somewhere to her closet where she will eventually get to come back from as Jesus saves his people. And that's a huge part of Revelation 19 next week when we start into that. But this whole verse is about the raptured bride hiding in her chambers and coming forth with the bridegroom, Jesus, as he saves Israel. So when you think about that, this is also referenced in the next couple of verses here, Isaiah 26. A lot of people say, hey, the rapture is nowhere to be found in the Old Testament. And I would challenge you that, yes, it is. You've got the bride in the closet right there in Joel 2. We'll look at Isaiah 26, 20. Come, my people, enter thou into thy chambers and shut thy doors about thee. Hide thyself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation be overpassed. So there's a group of people that the Lord is calling to hide in your chambers until the tribulation has been overpassed. Just think about that. That is remarkable. And Jesus went to prepare our chambers, our closet, our hiding place, our home. In John 14, in my Father's house, Jesus says, are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And this whole thing, we're going to look at this as a part of the study in chapter 19, but how the Jewish Galilean wedding models the rapture. And we looked at that months ago back in chapter 4, but we're going to hit on it one more time because of the marriage supper that we get to look forward to. In Jeremiah 16, 9, the same language, For thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will cause to cease out of this place in your eyes and in your days the voice of myrrh, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, and the voice of the bride. So there it is again, the Lord talking about the bridegroom and the bride. And speaking of Babylon in Jeremiah 25, Moreover, I will take from them the voice of myrrh and the voice of gladness and the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstone. That's just what we read. 
and the light of the candle. So there you have it prophesied all the way back in Jeremiah 25 as well. And it's interesting that God promises the total opposite to Jerusalem. And we looked at that last week, the, the comparison between the two women of Revelation, Israel, the woman clothed with the sun and the moon and the 12 stars, and then Babylon clothed in, decked in all these riches of the world, is who is the mother of harlots. But in Jeremiah 33, thus saith the Lord, again, there shall be heard in this place, which ye say shall be desolate without man and without beast. See, that's what Babylon claims over Jerusalem. Remember, she said that in chapter 17 and earlier in 18, that I sit a queen and am no widow. So she's boasting, and she's saying that it will be desolate without man, without beast, speaking of Jerusalem, but it's not. God's going to save it. Even in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate without man and without inhabitant and without beast, the voice of joy and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride. In other words, Babylon is trying to make it so that Jesus can't return because of the prerequisite in Hosea 5.15, that Israel has to petition his return. And the voice of them that shall say, Praise the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, for his mercy endureth forever. And of them that shall bring the sacrifice of praise into the house of the Lord, for I will cause to return the captivity of the land, as at the first, saith the Lord. In other words, the first time they were taken from Babylon. So the last verse in chapter 18 here. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all that were slain upon the earth. And so here it is, the final statement over Babylon, that in her is the blood of every prophet and saint that's ever lived and walked on this earth. That's why God has saved up this judgment for her at the end of the tribulation. And the blood of God's people does not go unavenged. Do not think for a second that with all the wickedness going on in the world, and you hear of these great atrocities all over the planet right now, of our brothers and sisters being slain for the gospel of Jesus, that God is going to sleep on that. There will come a day that it is totally 100% avenged and given back to them exactly as they gave it. But we just have to be patient, right? I've, sometimes you want to go and act and do things. I know a lot, a lot of the guys in Bible study want to go and act and do things, but it's the Lord says, vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. And we have to be long-suffering and patient with him to wait out because he is... While he's going to avenge them, he is also trying like mad to bring them into salvation because he, his will is that none of them should perish despite anything they did. So the blood cries to God from the earth. And anytime you think about everything that's going on, think about the millions and millions and millions of babies that are aborted and murdered in the womb every year in this world. This is the verse, Genesis 4.10. And he said, what hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. So all of that blood is crying to God all the way back from Genesis until now. 6,000 years ago almost to the day, almost to now. It all cries to the Lord for vengeance. So Babylon will fall. It started with Nimrod and Babel. Nebuchadnezzar brought it to world prominence again and then took Israel captive for 70 years at God's commandment. See, one of the reasons why God took Israel into captivity for 70 years is they didn't let the land rest. So they were instructed from Leviticus that they were to tow, or 
uh, till the land six years, let it rest the seventh. Well, they didn't do that for 490 years. They didn't do it. And so God essentially says, you owe me 70 years. Because by that time, they should have given the land 70 Sabbaths. But they didn't. And this is prophesied back in Leviticus 26. And I will scatter you among the heathen and will draw out a sword after you. And your land shall be desolate and your cities waste. Then shall the land enjoy her Sabbaths as long as it lieth desolate and ye be in your enemy's land. Even then shall the land rest and enjoy her Sabbaths. As long as it lieth desolate, it shall rest, because it did not rest in your Sabbaths when you dwelt upon it. So God's prophesying that they're not going to let the land rest. And as a result, he's going to have to take them into captivity, which is exactly what Nebuchadnezzar did for 70 years. It's also prophesied in Second Chronicles 36, until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths, speaking of how long they would go into captivity. In Jeremiah 25, 11, and this whole land shall be de- a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. So that was the prophecy. Because you didn't let it rest, you're going to be taken into captivity. You have to serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. For thus saith the Lord in Jeremiah 29, 10, that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you in causing you to return unto this place. See, that's, that's the part of the Bible Daniel's reading when he's in captivity and realizes the 70 years are almost up. He's reading Jeremiah 29.10. He's reading his Bible and realizing God promised after 70 years we'd go back, and it's almost been 70 years. And so he goes to prayer, and that's what leads to some of the most astonishing prophecies in the entire Bible. But the main question that faces us is, will Babylon, a literal city in Iraq, ultimately be destroyed? So when they were in captivity, Persia came and conquers Babylon. And a lot of people, some people believe that that fulfilled these six chapters, Isaiah 13 and 14, Jeremiah 50, 51, and Revelation 17 and 18. When Cyrus conquered Babylon, a lot of people believe that that's what fulfilled these six chapters. But my challenge to you is let's look at really what happened when Persia conquered Babylon and see, does it fit inside of God's word? And what, what does God say is going to happen? So on October the 12th, 539 BC, Cyrus's general captured Babylon without a battle. What they did, the Persians diverted the river Euphrates into a canal upriver so that the water level dropped, quote, to the height of the middle of a man's thigh. And this allowed all of the men to go under the moat, under these gates, and wade through the water without being swept away. See, Babylon was very prideful. They thought that their flood defenses, or their defenses of these moats and the rivers made them un- unbeatable, that nobody could conquer them because this river was raging around their city and nobody could cross it. So they sat in their castle thinking they were, they were it. They would never be conquered. They could go out and conquer the world, and no, nobody could do anything about it. So what they did, though, is they, they diverted these flood defenses, and they got under the gate. And according to Josephus, when Cyrus made his entrance into Babylon, Daniel presented him with a scroll of the book of Isaiah. And I think this is fascinating because the book of Isaiah prophesies Persia's conquest of Babylon and calls Cyrus by name more than a century before he was even born. So it's toward the end of Isaiah 44 and the beginning of Isaiah 45. 
that this, we'll look at these verses. Can you go to the next slide, David? Thanks. So in chapter 44, Thus saith the Lord thy Redeemer, and he that formed thee from the womb. I am the Lord that maketh all things that stretcheth forth the heavens alone. There's a physics statement there. That spreadeth abroad the earth by myself. That frustrateth the tokens of the liars and maketh diviners mad. That turneth wise men backward and maketh their knowledge foolish. That confirmeth the word of his servant and performeth the counsel of his messengers. That saith to Jerusalem, thou shalt be inhabited. In other words, you're not going to sit desolate. You will be inhabited again. And the cities of Judah. See, this was a great prophecy that Israel was holding on to when they were drug off as slaves to Babylon. But they had the word of God that they knew they would come back. Ye shall be built, and I will raise up the decayed places thereof, that saith to the deep, Be dry, and I will dry up thy rivers. Speaking of Babylon. That saith of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, Thou shalt be built, and to the temple thy foundation shall be laid. See, when Cyrus conquered them, conquered Babylon, he gave the Israelites, because of these passages that Daniel shows him in the scroll in the book of Isaiah, Cyrus gives Jerusalem or uh, the Israelites incentive to go rebuild the temple, and that's all in the book of Ezra. Okay, the next chapter, 45 verse 1, thus saith the Lord to his anointed. So here's God calling a, a Persian Gentile king his anointed in the Old Testament. That is amazing. To Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden to subdue nations before him, and I will loose the loins of kings. There's a prophecy there that's uh, hilarious. I love God's got such a great sense of humor. To open before him the two leaven gates, and the gates shall not be shut. Okay, I just had to throw this in here in Daniel chapter 5. So the loose the loins of kings. In Daniel 5, Belshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, Belshazzar, is holding this banquet where he's taken all of the temple in- instruments, the cups and the vessels and everything. He's having this huge party, and they're basically desecrating the Lord. And it's where the famous handwriting on the wall event happens. It's right before Cyrus's people march in and conquer Babylon. They're holding this huge party in chapter 5. And then God's hand shows up and writes on the wall an encrypted message that only Daniel can interpret and prophesy for him. But in Daniel 5, verse 6, then the king's countenance was changed. Man, can you imagine God's hand all of a sudden showing up and writing on the wall? Your countenance might change also. I know mine would be like, whoa, that's really cool. And his thoughts troubled him. I bet they did. So that the joints of his loins were loosed and his knees smote one against another. And so you can just imagine what's going on there. But God prophesied (laughs) all the way back in chapter 45 that he was going to do this. And he does it in chapter 5. It's incredible. So verse 2, And I will go before thee and make the crooked places straight, and I will break in pieces the gates of brass, and cut in sunder the bars of iron. And I will give thee the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that thou mayest know that I, the Lord, which call thee by thy name, am the God of Israel. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, mine elect, I have even called thee by thy name. Speaking to Cyrus, I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me. I am the Lord, and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me. In other words, I have raised you up, Cyrus. I've called you by name to go set my people free. 
And that's exactly what Cyrus did. So, that they may know from the rising of sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is none else. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. And so Cyrus obviously was blown away. As you can imagine, you would be too. If there was in a book that you didn't even know this God, but you were there by name a hundred years before you were ever born, and God lays out your career, what you're going to do, and how you're going to let Israel go back and rebuild the temple, and rebuild the, yeah, the temple from the book of Ezra. So he, he frees the captives, and they go do that. He returned the temple vessels that had been taken from the temple 70 years earlier, and he even provides financial incentives for the Jews to return to their homeland and rebuild that temple. And that's in 2 Chronicles 36 and the first four chapters of Ezra. So Babylon was conquered without a battle. And Cyrus even claims this himself. The word of God claims it, but then Cyrus claims it himself on the steel of Cyrus. It's at the British Museum in London. And it's, it's an ancient artifact. It's where Cyrus wrote a lot of things on the cylinder as he conquered the world. But he describes it on the cylinder. This is a quote from him. Without any battle, he entered the town, sparing any calamity. I returned to sacred cities on the other side of the Tigris, the sanctuaries of which had been ruins for a long time. And they were. The temple in Jerusalem was sitting in ruins the entire time Daniel and the Israelites were in captivity in Babylon and established for them permanent sanctuaries. I also gathered all their former inhabitants and returned to them their habitations. So without any battle. See, a lot of people in Babylon didn't even know they were taken over for three or four days. A lot of them just went about their business. They had no idea that Cyrus and his people had come in and conquered the city and conquered the the empire, the main city of the empire of Babylon. So what do these six chapters have in common? What I I want you to do and what I'm trying to impress on you is to rightly divide the word of God where you don't confuse the fall of Babylon with the destruction of Babylon. And that's the difference. And so kingdoms of nations, look at these six chapters. What I did was I went through and I made a list of just some very literal things that God declares in Isaiah 13 and 14, Jeremiah 15 and 51, and how do those fit with what we just read about Cyrus and what he did? They don't. None of them fit what he did. So the challenge is, when will this be fulfilled? And that's what we've been studying here in Revelation 17 and 18. Kingdoms of nations will be gathered to destroy the whole land in Isaiah 13, verses 4 and 5. That didn't happen. It was one nation. It was Persia that came in and conquered Babylon. It will be during the day of the Lord from Isaiah 13. The stars of heaven and constellations will not give their light, according to Isaiah 13, 9 and 10. The sun will be darkened and the moon shall not cause her light to shine in Isaiah 13, 9 and 10 again. All of that fits with what we've been studying in Revelation. Remember all these different things of the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give his light, the stars will fall from heaven. All these different judgments that have been showing up in the stars of of the heavens that the Lord put there. The earth shall remove out of her place in Isaiah 13, 13 through 14. Now that's going to be something when the Lord literally takes the earth during this time of tribulation. And right now, you could look up how fast it's spinning this way and spinning around the sun this way, and all of a sudden for God to just knock it out of its orbit, it will, it will be an unbelievable experience for those on earth during that time. 
that just the world would shake like no, never before when God just literally takes the earth. He hung it on nothing. He just moves it over. <laughs> just you can't imagine the, the force behind that. But the earth will remove out of her place. The Medes will be stirred up against Babylon. Okay, the Medes. That's a Middle Eastern group of people. Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldees' excellency. So the Chaldeans, is a, it's a name of the people that founded Babel in the plain of, plain of Shinar in Iraq, the Chaldeans. So this is not a, an excellency of the Americans or the Europeans or the Africans or the Chinese. This is a, it's a Middle Eastern Chaldees city that God declares over and over here in Isaiah 13. It shall never be inhabited or dwelt in again in Isaiah 13, verse 20. Palestine should not rejoice at their destruction. Well, Palestina in Isaiah 14 is in modern day the Middle East, right around Israel. It's spoken against Babylon, the land of the Chaldeans in Jeremiah 50. Israel will seek God as a result in Jeremiah 50, verses 3 and 4. The arrows used against Babylon will have intelligence in Jeremiah 50, verse 9. The word there in the Hebrew is sakal, and what the, what the word of God says is the arrows, it'll be a mighty, excellent marksman. The arrow will have, will not return void, and the word sakal means the intelligence is actually in the instrument that's launched, not in the person that shoots it. So the intelligence is in the smart missile or in the weapon. It's not in the archer or the man sitting controlling the machine. So it's pretty amazing how there's even a a technology statement of modern-day weaponry in this, in Jeremiah 50. It shall not be inhabited because of God's wrath in Jeremiah 50. Well, everything we've been reading about in the book of Revelation is God's wrath. Okay, from chapter 6 on. Israel will be completely forgiven in Jeremiah 50, 19 and 20, which is pretty amazing. It will be overthrown as Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, that certainly didn't happen when Cyrus marched in with his generals. It wasn't overthrown like Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed instantaneously in one hour with all of a sudden, after God's people had been removed. Remember, Lot had to be removed. We looked at that last week. Many kings from the coasts of the earth will come in Jeremiah 50, verses 41 and 42. Israel has not been forsaken in Jeremiah 51. Babylon has been a golden cup in Jeremiah 51. It'll suddenly fall and be destroyed in 51, verses 7 and 8. God will render to Babylon and all the inhabitants of Chaldea. Again, there's that phrase, the Middle Eastern Chaldeans, 51 verses 23 through 24. It'll be desolate forever. It's not desolate right now. You can go and visit Babylon. You can go south of Baghdad about 55 miles and walk through Babylon. We're going to show some pictures here in a second. It'll be desolate forever, God declares. That's a long time. Forever is a long time. It'll be without habitation Okay, Saddam Hussein used locals to rebuild it. It's inhabited today in Jeremiah 51, 29 through 30. It will be a dwelling place for dragons, according to Jeremiah 51, verses 37 through 39. Remember we looked at a couple, of, a couple of weeks ago, it'll be a cage for foul and unclean spirits, those birds, and we talked about how those birds are ministers of Satan from the seven kingdom parables in Matthew 13. It's, a, it's an idiom for the ministers that work iniquity, it will be their cage. Jeremiah even echoes that, that it will be a dwelling place for dragons. Dragons never have a positive connotation in the word of God. The whole earth is surprised as Babylon becomes an astonishment. So the whole earth is going to watch this unfold. 
in Jeremiah 51, verses 40 through 42, no man will dwell in Babylon again. They're dwelling there today. None of this sounds like when Cyrus took over. So to me, when I read this, and this is my challenge to you, this is why I have in the last verse here, Acts 17, 11, to me it sounds like this has not been fulfilled yet. But what you have to do is search the scriptures on your own and prove that these were so. And Acts 17, 11 is the verse to do that. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. So I don't want you to take my word for it. I don't want you to, to leave and, and think that this is 1,000% truth and, and Matt nailed it. I want you to go search on your own and read the word of God and just study it and see what the Holy Spirit shows you about it. So there's no way you can be, you're going to be able to read this, but on verse 25, on the screen at least, on slide 25, excuse me, 24, there's a table that I put together. And what you could do is lay out these six chapters from left to right. I put Isaiah 13, 14, Jeremiah 15, 51, and Revelation 17 and 18. And there's a list of characteristics that are common amongst these six chapters. And, and this is not an all-inclusive list. This was a list that I just put together from reading them. You, know, you can go in and make your own list, but what you can do is go in and write in the verse on where this characteristic is found. It's the day of the Lord, the destruction from the Almighty, it's pain as a woman in travel, fear and trembling, to lay the land desolate, it's not right now, sun shall be darkened, moon shall not give its light, punish the world for their evil, he'll shake the heavens, move the earth out of her place, the wrath of the Lord, the day of his fierce anger, Medes in the Middle East are involved, bows described as weapons, Babylon of the Chaldeans, it'll be like Sodom and Gomorrah, never to be inhabited again, Arabian not to pitch tent there again, Israel will be in their own land. The golden city ceased. The bricks are never to be reused. And I filled in that verse just to give you a, a head start. Jeremiah 51, verse 26. When this judgment takes place, the building bricks that were used will never be used again. And I've got a picture here I'm going to show you in a second on how they are being reused. It's from the north. That's not magnetic north. That's dimensionally north. The vengeance of God, drunk with the blood of saints, the mother of harlots, the scarlet and purple, prison for foul and unclean spirits, and it'll be destroyed in one hour. So you can go through and make that table. What I've got here are two pictures for you to look at. So back when Saddam Hussein was alive, he spent a lot of money rebuilding Nebuchadnezzar's palace and a palace for himself that he thought he was Nebuchadnezzar II or Nimrod II. He thought he was the heir to the Babylonian Empire. And what you can see here is the palace of Saddam Hussein is on the right, he built this synthetic hill and this gigantic, glorious palace. Down the hill is the southern palace and the Istar Gate. It's where that's the re, restructured palace of Nebuchadnezzar. That's the original palace that Nebuchadnezzar ruled in and where this banquet happened. And so then you've got these other pagan places, and then there's the river along it. Go to the next one, David. Okay, here's an aerial view you can see from the air. The palace on the, the far left here, Saddam Hussein built, and then the southern palace, that's the original Babylonian palace that Nebuchadnezzar walked through. So when you look at the, when you go, go to the next slide, David. Okay, what is going on over there right now? When you really look at it, it's amazing how much you can find in the headlines about Babylon if you just look. 
Back in March of this year, the Pope made a visit to Babel, to Iraq to tour Iraq, but made a stop through Babel or Babylon and Baghdad and all these other spots. And it's interesting to me that the Lord timed it to allow that to happen. And Pope Francis was not the first Pope to try to go to Iraq. In 2000, Pope John Paul II sought to make a pilgrimage to Iraq, Egypt, and Israel with the first stop in the city of Ur. And according to tradition, it's the birthplace of Abraham, the father of, in their eyes, the father of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And if you've heard the term Krishlam, they're trying, you've probably heard that in the news, they're trying to merge these three religions into one that's a, that the belief of Abraham, right? Father Abraham, and all these religions to come together and to kind of unite around the world. So they've been pushing this agenda for a while, that this would happen. John Paul II never made it. His negotiations, negotiations with Saddam Hussein fell through. The government broke down, and leading John Paul, according to Pope Francis, he wept because he never got the chance to go and see the birthplace of Abraham and, and Babel and all these spots around Iraq. And those are just some links. If you want to go at home and look at these on your own, there's some link to some, some news articles there. But from Ur, the birthplace of the prophet Abraham, in the southern desert to the ravaged Christian towns in the north, roads are being paved and churches rehabilitated in remote areas that have never seen such a high-profile visitor. So that's what they were doing in Iraq earlier this year as they were um, anticipating Pope Francis coming through. So there's a, a picture of a billboard they had in Iraq welcoming the Pope and the, the guy on the right. If I remember right, he's a, a key Islamic leader of an imam or something like that over there. So there's actually a video. If you go in and click in this YouTube video, not right now um, for the screen, but it's for you when you guys get home. It's about seven minutes long. It's a tour of that southern palace that we looked at. And you can go through and watch, watch the tour of them walking through this palace and looking at the original bricks that Nebuchadnezzar built this palace with. And I find it interesting because according to God's word in Jeremiah 51, 26, when this judgment happens, those bricks are never going to be used again. But yet we have on video of them going through and looking at them being reused. And they were the palace, they'll even talk about how the palace was re restored using local labor, people that live there. And they're trying to make it a spot of immense global tourism once again. That's their goal. They're trying to make it as a spot for people to come through and pick dates off the trees and sit by the Euphrates and sing Kumbaya as we unite these three religions under Abraham, right, together. But Abraham, what they don't realize is that Abraham was of one religion, and it was the God of Abraham and the God of the Old Testament and the same God that we serve, and they're trying to twist it into something that it was never meant to be. Uh, Islam is not a branch of Abrahamic faith that is to be held in the same esteem as Christianity and the God of the Bible. But if they can sell this agenda, then they can get the world to unite under this. And you can actually go in and see they're building these spots all over the world. I should have put a picture of this in here. But just look up the Abraham House overseas. It's in the UAE. They're building one. They're building one in Africa. They're building one in the Middle East. It's a common ground where they will have a Christian church, a synagogue, and a mosque all together on the same ground so that the three faiths can come together and go worship at the same time each morning together, kind of in peace and harmony. 
And again, I find that interesting because God says when they say peace and security, peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them. So last slide. How does this all return? And I'm just going to hit on this one more time because I think it's really critical to, to filling in these puzzle pieces. How does this system from Babel that went through Pergamos, that settled in Rome, how does it end up back at Babylon where we're seeing Saddam Hussein rebuilt these palaces? The world's trying to make it a place of tourism yet again. They even, back in the early 2000s, the United States had a, a program to route and make Babylon, of all places in the world, Babylon. I remember reading that 20 years ago and going, what in the world are they wanting with Babylon? Why does the United States military care about Babylon? You can even find videos of the military flying around those palaces in their helicopters and doing some activities there. But they were making it a center to route fiber optic cable to, to unite Western Europe and Eastern Asia. And they used it as a, as a networking hub. And so they built these underground facilities and they've got a lot of servers and stuff over there. It's really, it was kind of the dawn of instantaneous financial transactions. You know, now you can just, with the click of a button, send money to China from Switzerland or Spain or wherever. And so they did this program over there. And it, it blew me away as why in the world are they doing this back then? But it all makes sense when you read it in light of the Bible, in light of what is yet to come for Babylon. Not saying that we knew what they, they were doing that. I'm just saying that's it's amazing how God is going to use that in the end. Zechariah 5.5, 5, Then the angel that talked with me went forth and said unto me, Lift up now thine eyes and see what is this that goeth forth. And I said, What is it? And he said, This is an ephah that goeth forth. He said, Moreover, this is their resemblance through all the earth. And behold, there was a, lifted a, up a talent of lead. And this is a woman that sitteth in the midst of the ephah. Remember, the woman is mystery Babylon, wickedness. And he said, this is wickedness. And he cast it into the midst of the ephah, and he cast the weight of the lead upon the mouth thereof. So the ephah is the volumetric measurement of trade. A talent is the mass or weight that would be used in trading. So two different things here. You've got two things representing trade in which Mystery Babylon, the wickedness, will be sitting in the midst of. Then lifted I up mine eyes and looked, and behold, there came out two women, and the wind was in their wings for they had wings like the wings of a stork, that's an unclean bird to Israel, and they lifted up the ephah between the earth and the heaven. Then said I to the angel that talked with me, Whither do these bear the ephah? And he said unto me, To build it an house in the land of Shinar, and it shall be established and set thereupon her own base. See, that's the prophecy that this system is going to return back to the land of Shinar, the land of what we know now is Babylon, but Shinar is kind of the plain where Babel sits. So that closes out chapter 18, and what I love about it is it gives us an opportunity to read God's word and just look at modern headlines and see what is going on, and do we get the opportunity to sit back as students of the Bible and just see, Lord, how are you going to fulfill this? How is this going to come to light? And you get to actually watch God's prophetic word manifest in the headlines. It's amazing. So my challenge again to all of you is if you are in Jesus, just get in the word of God, get into it, get into it daily so that you can draw things out and you can look at everything that's going on in the news and see how does this fit with what God is declaring? How does it fit? Does it mesh with it? Does it counteract it? Does it go against it? 
you know, in three things, three times in God's word, he says, don't add to or take away from my word. And we're going to talk about that some next week too, but you've got to take God at his word right down this, the line and just know exactly this is what he said and what he declares. We're not to add to it or take away from it. And adding to it is just as dangerous as taking away from it. It's how Eve fell, right? She, she was not to eat of the tree, but she tells Satan, God said, don't eat of it or touch it. He never said that back in Genesis. He said, don't eat of it. He didn't say, don't touch it. But she didn't know that because she was being deceived and led astray. And so she added to God's word. She believed the lie. And thus, she and all of us with her fell. And praise God that Adam stepped in as a type of Jesus, as a type, a foreshadowing of Jesus, joining his bride in her predicament because he was not deceived. Adam knew exactly what he was doing. He joined her in that place so that a Messiah could come forth. He willingly took on mortality so that everyone from there forward could be saved through Jesus. And so in that one little story, you even have a type of Jesus at the very beginning. But we've got to rightly divide the word of God and the word of truth. And the only way to do that is to build your faith. It's the, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Hebrews 11.1, 1, that's what it is. It's important because without it, it's impossible to please him from Hebrews 11.6. And the only way to get it and please him and to rightly divide the word of truth is to be in it. So how do you get faith? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. So that's it. That's the three things you need to know about faith to get into the word of God. So if you don't know Jesus, if you're watching this online, or if you're here today and you want to get into this, you want a saving relationship with the Messiah before it's too late and you want to go home, I'm going home when the rapture calls. And I know a lot of you in this room are going home. And so if you are not in the Lord, you do not want to be here when Babylon is destroyed the way God has laid out for six chapters of his word. And so it's really simple. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. That's all it takes. So if you're watching this somewhere around the world and you haven't accepted Jesus, I am just imploring you, please, to get on your knees and cry out to him and give him a try. Everything else in your life has not worked and you've never given him a try. And so just give Jesus a try to fill that void, to bring contentment, to bring overflowing love into your life, to bring salvation and peace amidst the storm that you never even knew you needed. And that's it, Romans 10, 9. And when you do that, come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And that's exactly what happens. When you are born again, Everything you ever did in your life is wiped away and turned from crimson to white. And the only way to reason together, according to Amos, is you have to walk in agreement. And to get in agreement with the Lord, you have to know what does he want you to be in agreement with. And that's, again, the challenge to get into the word of God. You've got to be in agreement with him to walk with him. So with that, I'll close this in prayer. Lord, we just thank you so much for the book of Revelation. God, I thank you for the prophecies that you've laid out from cover to cover in your word. God, I thank you that for every prophecy declared of Jesus arriving the first time, there are at least eight, if not more, of him arriving in ruling, in a ruling glorified state. 
And God, we thank you for that promise. It is our blessed hope, the rapture and, and then to return with him. God, what a glorious hope we have in you and what you're going to set up. And so, Lord, I just pray a special blessing upon everyone here and everyone that was watching online, all of the families out traveling. God, I just pray a special blessing and a hedge of protection around every one of us that you would guard our minds and our hearts, guard us with your word, and give us complete clarity and discernment in the days and weeks and months ahead on exactly what you want us to do, Lord. Thank you so much for this time together. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.